0: Hey hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm not good at all, damn it. I got up this morning really early
1: knowing we were gonna do this. I jumped out of I went to bed like at 9 o'clock last night, right? Because I wanted to be fresh, I wanted to be focused, I wanted to have energy. So I popped up out of bed this morning like I was shot out of a fucking rocket. I go bolting across the room to the coffee maker, hook my baby toe on the side of a table. Damn near broke the little fucker off, and I've been in pain ever since. So I'm ready to
0: go. Wow. Well, all right. Well, uh, hopefully you enjoyed Starcade '96 because that's our topic today. But before we get to it, let's talk about last week, man. We had incredible feedback from our AWA episode. What was the feedback you got, Eric? I, I
1: you know, I want to be careful, but I am pretty certain that I got more response. You know on my twitter feed for that show we did last week the awa show than i have anything we've done so far i mean i i was overwhelmed you know i was excited to do the show and i was hope really hoping that people would give a damn you know because look it was awa it was a territory it was you know the, the upper midwest for the most part um it's just you know it, it, we're so used to national television now that i wasn't sure how many people would even remember the awa and and give a shit about it to be honest but like i said i got more response i'm pretty certain more response from that episode than anything we've done so far so it made me feel good and it was fun to do obviously you know, walking back down, you know, memory lane. I haven't taken a look back at the AWA or any footage. You know, thank God for the WWE Network for, for having all this stuff at our fingertips. But it was, it was really, really gratifying and made me really happy that we got such a great response.
0: Well, you know, I think uh, a lot of times the name of the show and the topic of the show is not really the story of the show. And to me, it felt like last week with our AWA episode, even though it was called. AWA. It was really more of the Eric Bischoff origin story and I think uh, the reason you got such an overwhelming response is we usually take a look at decisions that you made and it's my job to sort of be critical of that and beat up on it and this was different. This was a sort of peek behind the curtain into how you got into the wrestling business and I think the feedback I got for the most part was that this showed a different side of you and it sort of humanized you so instead of this sort of cut and dry, um, steely eyed businessman who takes great pride in firing the hockey talk man. This is about a, a kid who had a business idea and found himself in a, in a pretty cool s- situation and doubled down. And as a result had a successful career.
1: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, it's hard for me to, to think about myself in, in that same context, but I, I think one of the things you know, I listened back to parts of the show. Based on some of the feedback I got and I kind of you know when you and I do these things like you said oftentimes it's You know about decisions or specific business details and issues and conflicts and things like that And sometimes, you know, we we dig down and we analyze them and sometimes we you know and end up in a bitch fest over them or whatever That's the nature of what we do here but I found myself, you know, when I listened back to parts of the show, I was really kind of talking more about the feelings that I had yep. and what was going through my mind, you know, being thrust into a situation that I never imagined myself being in. And I think that might've been part of it as well. And that's something that you and I never really touch on too much. So that's probably what made the show a little unique.
0: Well, this is going to be something different today. We're going to talk about the granddaddy of them all, Starcade, 1996 and Eric and I have mapped out the rest of the month. So let's go ahead and tell you what's coming your way. Next week, we're going to keep this streak going and we're going to cover the biggest show in the history of WCW, Starcade 1997. It broke all records. It was the pay-per-view that most of us remember from the Monday night wars as being the most significant for WCW. And then the next week we're going to cover Starcade 1998, where they made the decision to beat Goldberg. We'll wrap up December with Starcade 94 and then Starcade 95. Now 94 is significant because all of a sudden, and no one can explain why. And that's what I can't wait to find out how the hell Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake got into the main event. And then in 95, it's going to be a little different. There's a lot of new Japan talent on the show and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about that. So I'm looking forward to this. It should be. Uh, the best run of shows we've had in a while, just because these are all very big, very significant shows. But let's just start with 1996, because this is right after the NWO comes in and starts to get hot. And all of a sudden, we have a new main eventer after Halloween Havoc, which is Rowdy Roddy Piper. He popped in and debuted at the very end of Halloween Havoc in October. And then they did a contract signing for this match between Hulk Hogan and Rowdy Piper at World War Three in November. So here's the big payoff, uh, but let's briefly talk about the financials. It went down on December 29th in Nashville at the Municipal Auditorium. It did a buy rate of 0.95 for a company gross of around 2.9 million bucks. I know we've touched on this briefly, but why Nashville? I mean, this is your biggest show. Was Nashville, You just had good deals in Nashville. There was a good business relationship. Why does Nashville get the biggest WCW show?
1: Uh, you know, a, a couple of reasons. Number one is just availability of venues. You know, when when we booked venues, and I wasn't directly involved in it, so I can't speak in specific granular detail. But generally, you know, when you booked a venue, you had to book them out eight 10, 12 months in advance. It wasn't like there's was just a bunch of great venues that could facilitate, you know, pretty sophisticated television production. Just sitting around empty, hoping somebody's going to come down the street and load it in a bunch of equipment and shoot a show. So you really had to plan well in advance. Um, I don't think there was a whole lot of confidence, you know, in late 95 or even early 96 that we would still, you know, we'd be able to fill buildings. Keep in mind, you know, 92, 93, 94, well, even 91, you know, WCW couldn't give tickets away. So this, the success that we were having was still pretty new. And although we were hot, real hot by ninety-six we didn't know we were going to be real hot in late 95 or early 96 when we were booking buildings. So I think there was probably, we probably took a pretty conservative approach as opposed to going into a bigger venue in a bigger market. We wanted to make sure that we could fill the the venue. That was my primary concern as a producer. Wasn't, uh, here we go again. You know, people are going to go fricking ballistic. When I say this, I wasn't as concerned about the gate as I was about the look of the show. The gate is a short term ROI, return on investment. And whether I made, you know, you probably have the numbers at your fingertips, I obviously don't, but let's just for a number as an example, it would be more important to me to sell out an arena and put $300,000 in our account than it would be to go to a much bigger arena in a bigger market and and draw four hundred thousand dollars, but have five thousand empty seats, because the the look, the look is the long term investment. When you have when you produce an event, a live action wrestling event. In my opinion, then and and now hasn't changed. If you don't establish to the viewing audience that are paying thirty nine ninety five or forty ninety nine for forty nine ninety five to buy this thing at home, if you don't establish it to, to them that this is a really important and event that's worth their investment, you lose you you lose market. You know, eventually your audience will nah, they just won't get excited about a pay per view, which is why I think it's was and probably still is much better to have an event like this. Maybe it's a smaller arena in a smaller market, but the people that are there are electric and they're reacting and they're even a little, you know, it's a little more intimate. Than in a in a you know a Georgia Dome for example, you know when you wa- go back and watch the show on a WWE network, you know e- it it feels very intimate. The energy and the reaction of the crowd really translates to the cameras uh, much better in, in a smaller market in a smaller venue than it does sometimes in a bigger one. But I think the real reason to answer your question, sorry I went so far deep into the weeds, no. too much coffee. <laughs> but I think the real reason really is we we were still playing fairly conservative because this this success was pretty new to us.
0: You know, and and business is a booming. Uh, you know, I, I really enjoy breaking down the numbers with you. So let's talk a little bit about where we are here at the end of 1996. Uh, and I'm getting all of my numbers here from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. And I know that annoys you, but it is the best resource that any wrestling fan can find now.
1: No, let me, let me jump in. Let me jump in. Uh, that's not really true. When it comes to numbers, ratings, stats, that kind of information, I think Dave's, you know then and probably now is probably the most accurate you know person out there that's rep- that was and probably still is reporting on this stuff. It wasn't the facts and the figures and the numbers that I generally had a problem with. It was the editorializing and the bullshit. So just keep, just want to make that clear. I didn't hate all this shit, just most of it.
0: (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about where we are in 1995. uh, Let's, let's go with say January of 95. Your average attendance is 2,060 fans by January of 96 is 3,050. Now that's pre NWO fast forward though. And you can certainly see where things start to pick up. For instance, in June, let's look at June 95 versus June 96. June of 95, your average attendance is 2,400. June 96, 4,070. Huge increase. September, more of the same. Your average attendance in September of 95 is 2,140. A year later in June, or I'm sorry, September of 96, 3,454. You're seeing incredible growth. And right here at the end of the year, it feels like it's really starting to take off. December of 95, your average attendance is 2,730 fans. A year later, it's 3,911. So business is up. But as you said, you couldn't really predict when you're out here booking buildings. But Nashville gets the big show. Uh, Do you remember any particular fun, like uh, the guys having fun in Nashville? And, And what I mean is... Some cities are more fun, more fun than others. You and I have both been to towns where there's just not a lot to do. And I imagine if you're a professional wrestler and you're on the road all the time, being in a fun town is a big step up. But I know that Broadway and downtown Nashville, well, you can have some fun down there. Am I right?
1: You certainly can. And I know a lot of the guys did. Now, I, when I went to Nashville, you know, because it was such a close drive to Atlanta, which is another... You know, was another consideration for us. We were still, you know, still operating in a little bit of an austerity um, kind of perspective when it came to travel. And in and, and the expenses that we could control, obviously, we were dumping a lot of money into talent. And that was working well for us. But whenever we could, we were still trying to make really smart decisions when it came to production. And Nashville was an easy drive for everybody. We didn't have to fly the crew. We didn't, you know, it was just a very, very inexpensive place to shoot and a cool place to shoot to your point. Now, when I went, I brought my family with. My kids were pretty young back then. So there was, you know, Lori and I couldn't go out and, and, and you know, hit Music Row or any of the, that kind of stuff. But I know a lot of the guys did. You know, I think when, when we went, you know, my son and I, uh, I don't think Lori and Montana went with us, but uh, my son and I went out and ate sushi with Ted DiBiase. That was our big night out in Nashville. But... Uh, A lot of the guys did party down. I Nashville is a fun, fun town. It really, it was then, and I'm sure it still is.
0: What what were some of your favorite buildings? You know, you were sort of insinuating a minute ago that the look is what's most important. And I think, you know, the analogy I heard uh, in my mind was it's almost like a club promoter. You know, if you're out here trying to get folks into a nightclub, yes, it's important that you make money, but what you really need is a line around the building and it's hard to get into and it's packed. And if you've got that kind of buzz at a new restaurant or a new nightclub or a new movie, then it just becomes one of those bandwagon effect things where everybody feels like they need to do this. They need to come try it. They need to check it out. So I get the perception is a really, really big deal, but I'm saying as far as just the actual building itself, you know, Bruce has told us on something to wrestle that, A lot of the guys really enjoyed wrestling in Chicago because the fans were great. And Steve Austin on his podcast would say he really liked working at that Rosemont horizon where they did WrestleMania 13 because it had a wood ceiling and it felt like the acoustics made the fans even louder. Was there a building where the the back was miserable? It was easy to get around. It was, do you have a favorite or a least favorite building from this era? You know, and this is not going to make any sense
1: to anybody, and, and it it you have to really know me um, to kind of get this at all. But my favorite building was the Cow Palace, really, in San Francisco. Yeah, because whenever I was in, like, when I went to Madison Square Garden, you know, I worked there a couple of times at WWE. It just I love history. I re, you know all kinds of history, you know, world history, American history. I just love history. And when I was walking, when I was in WWE and I was walking around Madison Square Garden, I was just imagining all of the big events, all of the emotion, all of the drama. So much of our entertainment history, you know, experienced some major things and moments in Madison Square Garden. And I, I, I used to walk around and go, man, if the, in fact, I, I almost started this a couple of years ago and I just kind of lost interest in it, but I, I used to think to myself, man, if these walls could only talk, can you imagine the stories that these walls could tell if that were, you know, possible and whenever I, you know, and I, I dig, you know, I dig what, what. Austin was saying, you know, in his podcast, the acoustics were phenomenal, phenomenal to Rosemont horizon. I love playing there. I do love the fans of Chicago. If I had to pick one city, you know, and it would be hard because there's a lot of other cities that have great, great wrestling fans, Baltimore being one of them. Um, Obviously anything in New York, Madison Square Garden, but there's something about the fans in Chicago that maybe it's because I'm from the Midwest. I don't know. But I really, really do think Chicago has some of the best fans. But for me, just on a very personal level, not business, not as a performer, nothing else, I used to love walking, just sitting in the Cow Palace and thinking about all the history that took place in that building. I love older buildings. And, you know, the same was true in, you know, Memphis and Louisville and, you know, some of the smaller markets where, the, you know, they don't tear down buildings every four years and replace them with a bigger, more expensive one. You know, there's was, there was a lot of buildings in the southeast especially that had so much, you know, wrestling history in particular in them. But for me, to answer your question without spending an hour on it, Cow Palace, San Francisco.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the revenue in the company. You know, we talked about how your average attendance is up, but that means your average gate is up as well. In December of 95, your average live show drew $25,750 at the gate here in December of 96, it's 48,000 and change. So we're up 87%, which is incredible. You weren't selling out any buildings the, the prior year and here you're selling out roughly a third. So quite the increase. And I'm curious because we've talked about this briefly. Turner was operating with budgets and you didn't have to get a lot of things approved because either it was in the budget or it wasn't. And I've always wanted to know, when did you guys set these budgets up? Is this something that you're doing at the end of the calendar year, at the end of the fiscal year, every quarter? But when you see business sort of on the rise like this, obviously it's time to revisit the budget. When would that have happened?
1: Yeah, in Turner at that time, calendar years and fiscal years were the same. So we would start working on, for example, you know, for 96, we would have started working on that budget preliminary stuff probably in April. And then by the end of the summer, we would. For the most part, pretty well have it nailed down. We presented in the fall. It would get approved for the following year. That was typically how things went.
0: Let's talk about some of the things that are going on behind the scenes. At the beginning of December, Mean Gene is plugging the 900 line. And he's talking about, uh, having a scoop where a big name wrestler may be headed to WCW. And he says that two of the big names were headed in and that one of them would make a quote unquote perfect partner for someone in WCW And he said that the story had been widely reported in the underground sheets that you read in restrooms and places like that. Uh, uh, (laughs) I love Gene. (laughs) That feels like something that you may have uh, had a chuckle at. And it makes me happy that all these years later still makes you laugh. The actual report, by the way, is that Raven may be headed in. uh, And of course, Meltzer would say there's nothing to that. There would be, but it would be uh, five or six months from there. And the second big name is Kimona, the former Kimona Wanalea from ECW. And, uh, he's saying that she would make a perfect pairing with Steve Regal, which I don't get, but either way, Kimona did wind up coming in eventually as did Raven. We haven't talked a lot about the 900 line with you here on 83 weeks. Uh, there's been lots of people who have different opinions about why the 900 line existed Several of which say, hey, this was part of Mean Gene's deal when he came in, and he participated in a big way. Set the record straight. How was the 900 line set up with regards to WCW and Mean Gene Overland?
1: Uh That's partially true. That, that report or, or that perception of Gene being involved uh, personally is, is partially true. Um, it was one of the ideas that Gene wanted to bring to the table. We we were still, again, you know, keep in mind, context is king here. You know, when Gene came in, you know, WCW needed revenue. We didn't have licensing. We didn't have merchandising. We didn't have sponsorship. You know, we didn't have, at the time Gene came in, we didn't have you know live gate to speak of, and our pay-per-views were minimal uh, in terms of revenue. So we were looking for every way possible to to make a buck. To to make that first dollar a profit, which was my mission from day one when I really took over WCW um, after becoming an executive producer. So when Gene, you know, talked about the 900 line and how much money it could make, um, why not? Why not do that? And if Gene was going to manage that and kind of head it up, I had no problem incentivizing him. And, and allowing him to participate in in that particular project it was new revenue it was found money it was ancillary it it didn't require a tremendous amount of resources or investment on our part so every dollar that came in through the 900 line was a dollar that we had never experienced before or 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 hadn't you know accounted for in our you know previous year budget to your point so yeah that that was partially true gene gene headed up Gene drove it, Gene managed it, he produced it, and he participated uh, in the revenue from that.
0: You know, we're talking about names coming and going, and obviously 96 is a a big year for new talent acquisition, shall we say. Do you remember there being any big names you were working on in 96 that didn't wind up coming in? And I know what a lot of our listeners are waiting on. Let's pretend Bret Hart's not in the conversation Besides Bret Hart.
1: Thank God. It, I'm really glad to hear that. I, I'd like to pretend he wasn't in the conversation too.
0: Is there another name though that you remember in 96 trying to put a deal together and for whatever reason, the timing wasn't right?
1: No, okay. no. You, I mean, you got to remember, you know, by 96, you know, post NWO, if you, Go back in time and just step back and look at, you know, where WWF was at that time, what their business looked like, what their guys were making, what their lives were like making the money that they were or were not making in WWF. Uh, and then you look over at WCW, we were definitely the place everybody wanted to be, you know, with probably the exception of The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. Um, so there was nobody that I wanted to do business with that I didn't have the ability to do business with. Right. More, More – more than anything, they were coming to me. It, it was more, really, the real challenge was you can only hire so many people, right. and, and not everybody's worth what they think they are. So, um, again, answer your question, short answer, no. There was nobody I wanted to do, do a deal with or was trying to do a deal with that I couldn't.
0: Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium, you can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Let's talk a little bit about the Harlem heat. It comes out in December that they had been trying to negotiate with the WWF. Of course, they wind up not going. Did you ever think you were in any danger of losing the Harlem heat? And would that have been significant for WCW? Had they jumped?
1: Uh, first part of your question. Uh, no. In fact, this is the first time I've, (laughs) I've heard that they were trying to negotiate with WWF. Uh, That wasn't apparent to me or on my radar. So I wouldn't have been worried about it because until this moment, I didn't fucking know it. Um, Now, in terms, you know, hypothetically, would that have hurt us? (coughs) No disrespect to Harlem Heat. Booker's still a very close friend of mine. I think the world of him and and Stevie as well. Um, But we were so hot, quite frankly, that it would not have been a blip on the radar.
0: Also in December, Buff Bagwell does a movie called Day of the Warrior. Uh, he played a character known as the Supreme Warrior, and he was rocking a loincloth and face paint. And uh he had a uh a fight scene against a penthouse playmate who he would then headbutt in her breasts and uh she gets knocked sounds out.
1: Sounds like a night out at the bar for Bagwell <laughs> to me. In fact, I was just with him at a convention about a year and a half ago, and I swear I saw the same thing take place at the hotel bar.
0: Chat me up here. Why does uh, Buff Bagwell wearing loincloth and face paint, head penthouse playmates never get mentioned on WCW-TV?
1: You know, I don't, it just wasn't the right fit. <laughs> 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 it just didn't fit our programming profile at the time and honestly i i had gone out to la i met the producer of that movie and you know the movie had probably a total budget of about i don't know 1.5 million which is just a step up or two from a home movie when it comes to this it was a directed dvd kind of project it wasn't it wasn't ever expected or anticipated that it would get theatrical release it was just a cute little you know, direct the DVD, you know, movie Marcus, you know, thought he wanted to be an actor and got the opportunity to do it. So cool. Do it. I just didn't want to have it associated with anything we were doing.
0: And there was no problem. I mean, what, what, what sort of process does he have to go to, or do you have to go to when you have a contracted performer who wants to do an outside project, Do they just bring it to you and say, Hey, Eric, I'd like to do this. Here's the details. Is that as simple as that?
1: Uh, yeah, for the most part, a lot of times the producer would come to us first because the producer obviously would be hoping to leverage yep. you know, WCW in a way and maybe get some promotion within our content and and that type of thing. So oftentimes the producer would come to us. But Marcus and I had a good enough relationship back then that um you know he he brought it directly to me. It wasn't a you know, it wasn't like there was a conflict. The only, you know, real things that we had to work out it uh, wasn't whether or not we would give him permission to do it. It was whether or not um, it conflicted from a scheduling point of view and how easy or difficult it would be to work around that potential conflict. But for the most part, it was no big deal.
0: Around this same time, you did an interview with the Charleston Post Courier regarding how you were being told that Vince McMahon didn't even remember you from your job interview back in 1990. Quote, in June of 90, I was down there for an interview and an audition and talked to Vince for probably half an hour. If he doesn't remember it, perhaps he was engaged in some of his admitted chemical activity during the time. But I was there. Whoa, he did was I there. see
1: that? Fuck. Why'd you got to bring that up? Why you have to do that? Why do you want to <laughs> stir this shit up after all these years? I had a good relationship with Vince McMahon up until this moment. What the fuck?
0: In the same article, you said, the nonsense and perception of reality, the Vince McMahon, a guy who was admitted to using steroids to try to beef up what was an otherwise scrawny, frail individual. I think when he wakes up in the morning, oh, God, he looks in the God, mirror Brad. and still what sees that 80 pound bird face punk that nobody wants to play with. <laughs> and he has to deal with that every day. And the way he's trying to deal with that is to create this perception of And I just hope that people are smart enough to see through this nonsense and deal with reality. Wow.
1: 80 pound bird. I mean, the bird face is true. You got to admit, come on. I mean, he does kind of, you've ever seen a picture of an ostrich up close.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) He's got perfect hair. I got to say, other than my own head of hair. Vince McMahon may qualify as the second most perfect head hair in the sports entertainment industry, but come on, look at that face. (laughs) That was cruel and unusual for me to do, to go out on a limb like that. He must've said something that irritated me. I don't know what it could have been, but he must've said something in an interview or something that that went up my ass sideways.
0: That he didn't remember you that you guys met in 90 and, and talked for a half hour and he was just dismissing you as if you were insignificant so uh, that, nah,
1: obviously- that wouldn't have been it that wouldn't have been enough to to, to rile me up to, to lay that kind of promo on him um, you know it's interesting you talk in in that article there's perception and reality. And I think that might have been it, I, because I remember hearing from a lot of guys that that worked for WWF. P- clearly, I hadn't at that point. That you know Vince w- was a big believer, and I don't know if this is true or not. This is just what I had heard. That Vince was a b- big believer, and if 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 you invest in the perception, it'll eventually become reality. And I kind of tried to flip that around a lot because it, you know, it was something that came up often. And I kind of dumped on perception and drilled down on reality because the reality was we were kicking our ass. The reality was, and after watching the show, by the way, Starcade 96, I'm a firm believer, our product was vastly, not a little bit superior, not, you know, substantially superior. It was like by a mile and a half. It was in another universe superior to the WWF product at this particular time in 96. And – I, I was trying to drive that home, you know, you, which essentially was my way of saying, is you know, pound your perception up your ass, you know, perception is perception, but reality is what you put in the bank, and that was probably what triggered <laughs> that vile, hate-filled, cruel and unusual promo that I did at the Charleston Post Courier. Man, I got plus it was Mike Mooneyham, and I didn't really dig Mike too much anyway. So I just wanted to, I wanted to light him up and see if he had the balls to print what I, what I had to say.
0: What, what's the deal with, with Mike Mooneyham? Why did you not? Uh, everybody likes Mike Mooneyham except you. I, no, I'm,
1: am kind of kidding. Um, he was very look. Mike Mooneyham, uh, might have been, at the time, one of the biggest Ric Flair marks in history. And, and, in Mike's mind, when he would write rick flair could do no wrong now you and i both know rick flair can be a challenge behind the scenes sure the public rick flair the rick flair that was in the ring back in the day um was not always the same rick flair that one would have to do business with and deal with and that part of you know that part of rick was you know people didn't know about that they didn't have to deal with that they were just in love with the nature boy and, you know, I, jet flying, kiss stealing, wheeling dealing, son of a gun or whatever the fuck it was. They knew that part of Rick, but they didn't know the the business side of Rick. And every time I, would you know, read, you know, a, a Mooneyham column, especially during that time when Rick and I were, you know, battling it out business wise, um, He was so naive and ignorant to what was really going on, but it didn't matter to him. He just took Rick. He he was like an advocate for Rick. So that was, you know, that was my, that was my bitch with Mooney ham at the time. I certainly don't carry that around with me now. If I met him on the street, I'd like to say hi and buy him a beer. But back then, you know, he, he kind of got under my skin quite a bit.
0: I cannot wait to ask you about this. Around this same time, Hulk Hogan is on the road selling the Hulk Hogan thunder mixer. Brother, um, it's a, it's a, it's a blender of sorts. Uh, you've probably seen these sort of shaker type things. And during these trips, of course, he's in full NWO gear, but he's explaining that he hasn't changed brother. He just got tired of all the politics and the big pro wrestling organizations and decided to form his own company. Chat me up. what do you think of the Hulk Hogan thunder mixer?
1: <laughs> Hulk was still reeling from the fact that the George Foreman grill was originally – it could have been his. He could have. It could have been the Hulk Hogan grill instead of the George Foreman grill. And in case any of our listeners haven't heard the story, uh, and I know it's been told before, but I haven't, so here you go. <clears throat> Hulk Hogan and George Foreman had the same attorney by the name of Henry Holmes. Henry was a big time – he, he re- represented a lot of boxers – promoters he was a really 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 big time guy in the boxing world as well as general entertainment he had a lot of you know barbara streisand i think was a client for a while um oh who was the babe watch or watch babe watch <laughs> fraudulent um hasselhoff no the chick oh pamela anderson pamela anderson he was pamela anderson's attorney he had a lot of uh, martina naturalova you know billy Jean king he was he was Pretty well-rounded entertainment guy, sports guy. But anyway, they shared the, – the, both Hulk Hogan and George Foreman shared Henry as an attorney. Henry picked up the phone one day because this grill came to him and they were looking – people. the manufacturers or distributors of this grill were looking for a celebrity to attach to it. So they got a hold of Henry. Henry immediately put a phone call into Hulk – because Hulk was hotter than hell at that time and it probably made, actually made the most sense and probably would have done as well as George. But Henry put in a call to to Hulk and Hulk wasn't home. He was taking his kids to school or out with his kids or whatever the deal was. And this was before cell phones, all right? Mm -hmm. So Henry left a message on, on Hulk's answering machine Time went by, no answer, no answer, no answer. And the distributors of this grill, they were really anxious to get somebody locked in. So Henry called George, and George took the deal and went on to make probably $150 million. (laughs) I'm I'm pulling that number out of thin air, but it was a massive amount of money. Yeah. And all just, you know, to this day, he'll, he'll joke about it, you know, how, you know, by just missing one simple phone call, he lost out an opportunity to, you know, probably make between seventy five and one hundred twenty five million dollars was the real number. <clears throat> what, what, so when the thunder mixer came along, I think Terry's Hawk's uh, reaction was, "I'm not letting this one go, brother. <laughs> this is this is this is my make good," and uh, it clearly was not.
0: Well, he got in the grill game about a decade later. He did the Hulk Hogan's ultimate grill. And this was on the heels of his television show. And they even had ads that said Hogan grills best. And they had a little cookbook for Hogan knows grilling. So he was not letting loose. You can actually see this thing over Hulk Hogan com. That's a real website.
1: Yeah. And I think the, the, the people behind that if memory serves me correctly, it was a company called Tristar That's Entertainment. Right. Yep. And tri- Tristar, and I actually, you know, I, I, I visited their offices a while back, oh, several years ago now, but um, they're, to this day, they're one of the biggest uh, per inquiry or direct sales companies out there. They, they tend to focus on kitchen-type products, but I was actually at Hulk's house when they were filming that commercial for that grill. And it was really, I mean, they put a lot of money into it. I mean, that, that that infomercial that they shot, Linda, you know, Hulk's wife was in it, her former wife. I think the kids were involved in it. They shot it in Hulk's mansion on the beach over in Clearwater. They put a lot of money in it. But, it, you know, the, by that time, the whole, you know, celebrity grill thing had been pretty well baked to death, you know, with the George Foreman grill. So it just didn't never really took off.
0: Tristar, by the way, have brought you products like Copper Chef and the Ab Roller that made hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think that Ab Roller has made more than a billion. So they've had a lot of hits, but the Hulk Hogan Ultimate Grill may not have made the list. Let's talk about uh, AAA. Uh, It comes to light at the end of 96 that because the WWF is going to run a dome in January of 97 for the Royal Rumble, and they're going to do it in an area where they probably need to have some Lucha Libre stars because they're running in Texas, they start to make an association with AAA. Around this same time, of course, though, you guys are heavily featuring the luchadors on WCW programming, especially Nitro, and Rey Mysterio Jr., Psychosis, and 2 Guerrera all signed contracts with WCW, and guys like Supercalo, La Parca, Viano, uh, Halloween, and Damian all sign letters of intent when you hear that maybe the wwf is gonna start to dabble in lucha libre is there a mad dash inside the office to get some of these guys on paper so they can't go work for the competition
1: none whatsoever i I, first of all again you know you're telling me something that i i certainly wasn't aware of back then but um my decision to bring Lucha into WCW obviously predated this moment that you're discussing with WWE and their decision to run a, a, you know, a big dome event or whatever it is in 97. I brought Lucha, the guys from Lucha in because it was my desire And this show. I think establishes that Starcade 96. My, one of my strategies, <clears throat> long-term strategies was to create a, a much more diverse, uh, Talent roster, and I mean diverse in terms of, you know, wanting Japanese, wanted, you know, the Lucha Stars from Mexico, you know, wanting to be more – wanting to be perceived (laughs) – there we go. I was trying to avoid the word – wanting to be perceived as more of an international company as opposed to just a domestic U.S. company. I wanted the world. I didn't want to just be the number one wrestling show in the United States. I want to be the number one wrestling show in the world. And I wanted to increase our international distribution, our international television footprint, our international touring footprint. All of those things were really important to me at that time. And bringing in the luchas and bringing in, you know, working as closely as I obviously was in 96 with New Japan was all part of that. It had nothing to do with me reacting in a kind of a fear based mode of, oh my gosh, I better go sign up all these lucha guys because if I don't, Vince McMahon may get them. That sounds to me like more of a dirt sheet kind of suggestion uh, than it was any kind of reality.
0: Let's talk about. the French television network canal plus at the very beginning, canal,
1: canal plus there you go. If you say, if you say canal plus over there, they get all fucked up and upside down It's canal plus.
0: Oh, I learned something new today. So you, there neg- you, go. you negotiate a, a three-year deal with them and it's, it's pretty significant because the deal is for nitro to replace the WWF programming. That's been on that station for a decade. And the deal's worth seven figures, so it is significant financially, but going back to the way you sort of started this show, the perception of WCW sort of taking their programming and doing so in France, that's a big deal because it's not like WCW had this really strong foothold over there. The WWF had always had that international distribution, or at least a leg up on WCW. Pretty big deal here, is it not?
1: It's a very big deal, and I think you've un- you understated just now <clears throat> how much of a leg up. I mean, WCW was virtually, well, not virtually, might as well have been non existent in, in the international marketplace. Our international television sales, and it wasn't the fault of the people doing it. I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions to the people that were trying hard to get a foothold for WCW. Keep in mind, our product sucked from 91 probably all the way up to late 95 our product just wasn't up to par it, the production values were were pretty bad you know go back and look at some wcw content from 92 90, 91 92 93 even early 94 Um, It just wasn't there compared to WWF. So when people internationally, you know, they weren't hardcore wrestling fans. They didn't read the dirt sheets. They didn't really care what the ratings were. Well, they did. That's not true. But they just weren't as intimate with the wrestling business as the fans were, obviously. So when they looked at, okay, well, here's one product here. Here's another product here. Let's compare them. Well, you go back to 91, 92, 93, 94, and you look at the WCW product, you compare it to the WWF product, no one's going to buy WCW. Right. No one. It just, they didn't compare. So by the time we got to where we were in 96, <clears throat> all of a sudden, our shows not only looked better, but our crowds were more invested in the show. The, <clears throat> Not to go too far off track here, but... Early on, and I don't know if this is true or not, by the way, uh, what I'm about to say, somewhere along the line, uh, early in the 90s, someone told me or I read that Elvis Presley had a quote that, you know, the most important part of any show is out in the audience. And, And whether he actually said that or not, it's always stuck in my head, is, especially as it relates to producing live action, live you know, event-based entertainment, meaning that if the crowd isn't passionate, if they're not into it, if they're not totally invested in what's going on in the ring on the main stage, then there's no way you can expect the audience at home to be either. Which is why, again, it goes back to you know maybe sometimes smaller venues are better than bigger venues because the bigger venues, even if you fill them up, the bigger venues, just the energy in that audience dissipates. They're far enough away from the ring that you don't sense their passion. And one of the things that I think distinguished our show in 96 and 97, especially even early 98, is that when you looked at them side by side – the passion and the engagement of our audience was significantly um, more powerful than what you would see in WWE. So it w- closing the deal with Canal, Canal Plus was important to me. Now, you know, my ego dug it. You know, anytime I could, you know, kick a leg out from underneath them and, and drop them, you know, in a business transaction, that was always kind of fun for me on a personal level. But on a business level, all of a sudden we're going from, Almost non-existent in the international marketplace, to d- doing TV deals with some of the biggest, you know, distributors in Europe, and that was a sign. Not only you know the seven-figure deal for television, which was great, because again, that's found money. They're taking the same show that we'd already produced for for our live broadcast, and we're repackaging it, shipping it out the door for seven figures a year with very, very minimal, minimal cost in terms of, you know, repackaging the show for that market. So it was a big deal financially, but it was a bigger, bigger deal for us in in terms of how we were viewed in the international marketplace, because Canal Plus was like NBC, you know, it was a, you know, it had that patina on it and it made it much easier to sell smaller television networks in other parts of, of Europe. So it was a big damn deal, actually bigger than, bigger than the money would suggest.
0: So let's talk a little bit about, um, and I can't believe this is a real thing. We're going to see the debut of Mortis, who was Chris Canyon, and he's going to start a feud with glacier and it feels, I don't know, out of place given how hot the NWO is talk to me a little bit about the Mortis character and why Chris Canyon was the right guy for it and how you felt he did
1: yeah it's kind of a dichotomy when you think about it now you know stepping back and and looking at what was really working and clearly you know the antithesis of what was really working but i i was still somewhat committed to the idea of creating characters that would easily transition into video games because i really believed that that's where a lot of ancillary money and new revenue could be created and while i didn't you know, I never have. I've never, been a, I've never been shy about talking about this. I've never been a big fan of gimmick matches. I've never been a big fan of gimmick characters. I really love reality-based things that, that allow me to forget that I'm watching scripted sports entertainment and kind of just get sucked into the emotion and the story and the characters. That's my personal preference. But I also knew that not everybody agreed with me. You know, just because I liked it doesn't mean everybody does. And there was still room for a more animated, maybe younger skewing, different type of character. So even though it wasn't my cup of tea necessarily, from a business perspective, having characters that at the time I believed would more easily translate into video game opportunities was way more important than my personal preference. And actually more important than what may or may not have actually been working on TV. There are some things that you do on television for commercial purposes or business purposes that don't necessarily get you the best ratings. They're not always symbiotic. You know, great television ratings with a great character is not always true. There are some people that make a lot of money selling T-shirts for whatever reason. Or, or, or other, you know, properties in, in licensing that don't necessarily drive the highest ratings. So that was the reason behind it. I thought the Mortis character, you know, I, I can Chris Canyon was an amazing guy. I. <clears throat> it's one of the things you know when you and I do these shows, I go back and I look at things that I haven't looked at in you know twenty years. I, most of the time, I've completely forgotten about this show. For example, Starcade ninety six. I got up about 5.30 this morning because I knew we were going to do it. I wanted it to be fresh in my mind. And so much of what I saw I had forgotten about because once you do it, you put it in the can, you, you know, move on, on to the next show. Right. And I'm not unique in that respect. I was talking to Brian Gewurz, you know, a couple of weeks ago who's now working for The Rock over at um, Seven Bucks Productions. And we were kind of joking back and forth how, you know, people always ask him. And I think we were talking about this this podcast because, man, I don't know how you do it. You know, Conrad, you know, gets into, you know, he's asking all these questions and he, he's getting into this granular detail. And it's like Brian said, he goes, Eric, I, I would write a show. We would put that show to bed and move on to the next show. And two days later, I wouldn't remember what I did. You know, So that and that was the case here. But when I go back and I look at these shows and I see someone like Chris Canyon or I see, and obviously Chris wasn't on this particular show, Starcade 96, but when I go back and I look at that character and I see what a great talent he really was. He didn't have the best look. You know, he wasn't, you know, he had such a strong, you know, New York accent that he was sometimes hard to understand (laughs) for anybody outside of New York City. But from a talent point of view, from his ability in the ring, I don't know that there's been anybody quite like him in a while. He was amazing. He could invent shit that nobody would ever see before or had seen before. He was really, really talented. And what I liked about Chris more than anything, or as much as anything, I should say, is that he could not only do it, but he was great at teaching it. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, those who can do and those who can't do teach? Yep. Okay. Chris was the exception to that. Chris could not only do it, he could teach it. And and not many people are like that. There's a lot of great talent out there that are never going to be able to share or or effectively share or teach and and transfer their skill sets to other people who are trying to learn it. You know, being a great teacher, particularly in some a uh, performance art like like sports entertainment or professional wrestling is it's a very unique thing to try to teach because it's it's not only the physical aspects of it, which are, you know, so critical. It's the foundation, it's the base, but the psychology and and teaching talent how to simultaneously you know, focus on the psychology and the way they're carrying themselves and what they're doing in the ring, as well as the, the actual physical execution of it all. And Chris was one of those guys that, you know, he defied that saying those who can do and those who can't do teach because he was as good at, at one as he was at the other.
0: Hypothetically, if, if he, uh, of course we lost, uh, Canyon, but if he was still with us, do you think he would have had a spot at the performance center? I can't imagine for
1: the life of me that he wouldn't have. I think it, it would have been likely because it was already starting to happen um, when Chris worked on the Ready to Rumble movie for Warner Brothers. You know he you know that that movie as much you know <laughs> shit as everybody gives it right. That was a pretty significant movie in terms of its budget and the investment that Warner Brothers put into it and the people that were working on it. You know I remember meeting. You know, one of the biggest producers in Hollywood right now is a guy by the name of Lorenzo de Bonaventura, He's still with Warner Brothers. The Ready to Rumble was one of his first movies, uh, big, big budget movies. You know, there were a lot of people on that movie and there was a lot of executives at Warner Brothers watching, you know, every day of production on that movie. And Chris Canyon was very important um, in terms of setting up. You know, the match sequences and working with people who weren't really wrestlers, trying to make them look reasonably good, you know, in their scenes. And a lot of people saw that. A lot of stunt coordinators saw it. A lot of, you know, directors saw it. Assistant directors saw it. You know, assistant producers saw it and, you know, following that movie, Chris was getting a lot of interest from Hollywood because everybody recognized that he was not just a wrestler, that he could choreograph a fight scene and 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 make it look phenomenal in ways that nobody else had ever seen before. So to answer your question, sure, I think it would it would have been an absolute shame had he not gotten an opportunity at WWE performance. And I'm I'm pretty sure he would have. Um, but it's in all likelihood, he would have, he could have easily ended up out in Los Angeles as a pretty significant, pretty significant player in the movie industry.
0: Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the famous diamond Dallas page Christmas party because 1996 was no exception. Of course, anybody who's kept up with diamond Dallas page online or knows him in real life knows that he absolutely loves the holidays, specifically Christmas and he held a Christmas party here in 1996 at his house, just like he has every year since I'm sure. But here they're actually taping an angle with the NWO and Eric Bischoff crashing the party. And apparently something that wasn't supposed to happen on TV happened of interest here. It's uh van hammer running down WCW for using quote little Mexican wrestlers. And apparently he's, uh, Going off about how they're bringing in all this talent from the British wrestlers to the little Mexicans. And allegedly, Dave Taylor and Steve Regal hear this. Regal, who is a bit of a badass, he's heard enough. A couple of headbutts later, and Van Hammer is knocked out cold on the floor. And according to the Observer, apparently Bischoff, who was there, was saying that Van Hammer had very little chance of ever getting back in the WCW in the first place, but now he has no chance. What do you remember about this incident at DDP's house over Christmas?
1: I wanted to give Dave Taylor a race, and and <laughs> and, <laughs> and fit. I mean, I, look, nothing. I didn't have any personal gripe against Van Hammer, but what a stupid thing to say! Yeah, I mean, it was just so. It's just such a stupid thing to say, and you know, sometimes people just need to get knocked out. I was good with it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um Tataka. I can't believe we're about to say this, and it's probably gonna be a shirt. Quote, there are rumors that Tataka may be coming in and joining the NWO.
1: You, you you left out a very important part. Who did that quote come from?
0: Well, listen, I'm freestyling a little bit, but it was in the dirt sheets, and, and, and I don't want to pile on here. I don't want this to become Mabel was the third man. But do you remember ever having a conversation with Tatanka about coming in?
1: Never fucking happened. Never. Not one conversation. Not a phone call. I never got a message. Never had a little pink slip on my desk that said, Hey, Eric, Tatanka called. Wants you to call him back. Never fucking happened.
0: Hypothetically, if Tatanka did call and left a message, would it be? <laughs> I know, I know, Bruce isn't on the other end here, but that's every time I say Tatanka on something to wrestle, he just jumps into that.
1: No, I, I, I met and had my first conversation with Tatanka about two years ago at an event in Oklahoma City. It was the first time I ever laid eyes on him in person, and the first time one syllable one vowel, one consonant of a conversation had ever taken place between the two of us. And I know you don't want to bury anybody in the dirt sheet universe, but they fucking deserve it for writing this kind of stupid shit that has no basis. In fact, whatever sources they thought they were using were either fucking with them or were high and just thought it was funny. It is. but It was, re- it was reported as fact.
0: Well, listen, as if that's not silly enough on December 9th, M wall street joins the NWO. Two different things, but come on, man, he didn't belong in the NWO. The NWO was cool. This is the fucking opposite of that.
1: No, you're right. You know, and and looking back at this now and, and obviously having, you know, 20, 20 years to digest all my good ideas and my bad ideas together. Um, this was clearly a bad idea. There was a number of version was a bad idea. Um, Ted DiBiase was probably the worst idea when it came to casting NWO. And it has nothing to do with Ted. I've touched on this before. I love Ted DiBiase. He's a great guy. We see each other on the road. We hang out. We have dinner. He's a, he's a gentleman, and he's a pro. Um, but you are truly, in, in, in a poor decision-making mode, cast him you know, as one of the voices or one of the talking heads to kind of lead the NWO. And it just was, like, it's bad casting. I don't know another way to say it. It had nothing to do with Ted's talents or ability. had nothing to do with his credibility. had nothing to do with anything other than it was just a bad fit. Now, Michael Wall Street was another example of that, and there are others. We can talk about any number of them as the NWO grew to expand. But you're right. Uh, That's a valid criticism. Michael Wall Street did not fit.
0: I should mention you guys are absolutely thumping raw in the ratings. Um, in December, the first week you got a 3.4 raw does a 2.3. Uh, you would get a win the next week as well. You did a 3.1 and raw did a 2.3. Uh, so you're, you're cruising as we get to like the halfway point of December here. And you take over the Pensacola, Florida episode, at least the first hour with Ted DiBiase and start calling it NWO nitro. And you've sort of freestyled here on the show that, Hey, that was supposed to be the plan. Nitro is going to be the NWO show. Thunder is going to be the WCW show, but this is in mid December, 1996. Were you already sort of kicking the tires about maybe we'll make a full NWO show, or maybe we'll make an hour of this show strictly NWO.
1: No, it wasn't that at all. It was just, I mean, it's, I think that's a, this is a perfect example of you know my wife is really big into to energy and and you know what you say how you carry yourself what you do kind of gets out there in the universe and it attracts certain things to you and you know she's really and she's an amazing person by the way cuz she keeps herself in a really as she would say at a very high vibrational state you know all of the time she, you if you if you spend any time around my wife at all you will never see her in a bad mood you'll never see her you know not even for like minutes at a time in a negative frame of mind she's just really good at controlling her emotion and she be- and she believes that by doing so you attract the things that you that you want in life not to get too ethereal here on the show but I think this is a perfect example of my wife probably being correct because the whole, you know, calling it NWO Nitro and, you know, creating the illusion or the storyline even or just commentary for the sake of pissing people off that, you know, the NWO was going to take over Nitro actually became a thing with thunder down the road or strategy down the road. But here at this time, it was just simply me spewing shit.
0: Uh, I I do want to mention that, uh, on this same show where you guys are taking over the NWO nitro episode, Masahiro Chono comes out with Sonny Ono. And, um, I ran into Sonny Ono this past week in North Carolina. And as we're sitting at the bar, a lady approached us. Oh God. And, um. Sonny didn't recognize her because it had been many, many years, but then when she introduced herself, Sonny laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. She was a friend of yours back in the day. The suspense is killing me. I'm not going to tell you her name here, but I will off air, but I will say that, uh, Sonny just laughed and laughed and laughed as she departed because he said that this particular friend, really introduced you to a, a lot of new things and that you talked about her very fondly.
1: Really? Come on. Give me another hand. <laughs> oh, you can't, you cannot leave me hanging like
0: this, dude. <laughs> that is not cool. Yeah, it was awesome. So anyway, uh, it turns out you had a lot of fun up in like the chapel hill area many moons ago when you're doing karate tournaments with Sonny. Ono as a youth.
1: Oh no. You talking about Vanessa Dorman? <laughs>
0: I love that you're just pulling names. You're like, oh, I know exactly who he's talking about. Was it Vanessa? Uh, she had a nickname. Uh, it wouldn't have been Vanessa. She had a nickname. Oh and Sonny God. Ono had the most. It was almost like a, a movie level maniacal laugh. <laughs> I,
1: it's one of the reasons I love martial arts, man. Go to those karate tournaments. We're a blast.
0: Yeah. He said that really it wasn't about the money. It was about the roll tide. It right. was all about the roll tide. I
1: had. I mean, that period of my life was <clears> – <throat> <laughs> it was very influential. Let's put it that way. You think rock stars have – you know, people think only rock stars have groupies or, you know, movie stars. But when you're a pretty successful martial artist and you travel around to all these little martial arts tournaments and some sometimes they're in big cities and sometimes they're in small ones, but – It was amazing, dude. I just, and that was the first time in my life I'd ever experienced that. You know, I wasn't much of a ladies' man, you know, in high school and and even afterwards. It's just, you know, get lucky every once in a while, that type of thing. But man, all of a sudden, when you're a black belt you're traveling around the country and you're fighting these tournaments, it just come out of the woodwork. And I don't know if it's because they had like daddy issues and wanted somebody that was a badass, you know, to hang with or what the deal was, but it was freaky fun
0: we tied and, uh, yeah, let's move along here uh, on this show. You, you make reference to the pay-per-view from the night before referencing that it was a horrible show. And of course you're talking about in your house. It's time, which was the WWF pay-per-view down in West Palm beach. Uh, and then Chono actually loses by DQ to Chris Jericho. Next up, Dean Malenko retains the cruiserweight title with a win over David San Martino. Why didn't we see more of David San Martino in, inside of WCW in this era? Uh,
1: he hit a couple speed bumps along the way. He was you know, he had his own challenges and issues. Okay. The idea was a good idea. You know, bring you know the San Martino name was a big deal. And you know, David had a <laughs> a good although, you know, artificial look. But um he didn't really have it in the ring and his personal issues got in the way
0: that episode of nitro gets a 3.2 and uh, of course raw gets a 2.3 the story here for sting by the way he's not going to be competing in Starcade 96 we're just building to 97 at this point although we may not actually know that at the time but we're still trying to decide whose side is sting on Uh, and it felt like during the month of december that he was going to attack rick steiner and maybe rick was going to hit him with a bat but that doesn't happen and then He's interfering in things, but then just walking away. So it's still very much a mystery. Uh, Let's talk about the go home episode of Nitro, the go home episode for Starcade here. It's December 23rd, just a couple of days before Christmas in Macon, Georgia. They drew 4,900 fans for a gate of over 63,000. And it was not only the largest pro wrestling gate ever in Macon, but a record gate for the Coliseum, even beating out Reba McIntyre, who held the previous record. Uh and this show is really building towards Starcade, of course, and we see some good action underneath. Rey Mysterio, Penn JL, Hulk Hogan's coming out to do an interview. Lex Luger is gonna beat Tombstone, who we know is 911 in ECW. After that match, Luger would put the giant in a rack before Hall and Nash make the save. You've got a horseman promo. You've got Eddie Guerrero wrestling Chris Benoit. Lots of good stuff here on the show. But then there's some interesting stuff like Glacier beating Buddy Lee Parker and the amazing French Canadians beating the public enemy. It does feel like WCW is in a bit of a transition where part of it still feels like it's the first quarter of 1996. And then the other part is like what Nitro is going to really become when it's fully realized in 97.
1: I agree with that. And we were, it was a transition, you know, we didn't, we didn't make a hard right or hard left at any point it was you know nitro evolved from you know september 95 you know we're only what at this point a little over a year old and and finding our way with our characters and with the way we're presenting the product and look at everything that we had introduced between you know september of 95 with the very first nitro and where we are now you know in december of 96 in terms of cruiserweights and the Lucha experience and, you know, establishing New Japan as heavily as we were, creating more reality-based real characters. But at the same time, you know, we still had, you know, the French Canadians and, you know, the the Mortises and, and the, the glaciers. Um, we still had a lot of that. Th- those characters were still part of our show. But it was, you know, we were in a 12-month transition at that point. Still trying to figure out what really worked and what didn't.
0: Nitro here does a 3.1, and uh, Raw does its worst mark in history. Not only for Raw, but the lowest for any Monday night wrestling show, going back to TNT and Primetime Wrestling, and only does a 1.5. So the interest in Starcade is through the roof compared to the WWF. When you see them hit a 1.5, you've got to be strutting that ass in the office, are you not? Yes and no. You know, I. People,
1: the narrative, you know, over the last 20 or more years has been how I was so single-mindedly focused on, you know, simply, you know, putting WWF out of business. And I've said this before. It's not really true. I know I said a lot of outrageous shit. Part of that was to try to motivate people. Part of that was try to to get my character over because I knew a lot of that stuff would leak. Uh, Part of it was um, just me being me. Um, it it wasn't necessarily me really wanting to put them out of business. I was focused on being number one, whether I was number one by a mile and they went out of business or whether I was number one and they were a solid number two didn't really matter to me. And nobody's going to ever believe that, but me, but I don't really give a shit at this point in my life. That was true. So while I was happy to see us beat them soundly, uh, it wasn't like, oh my God, they're almost dead. Oh, we're we're so close. We're so close. It wasn't that. It was just another week of us proving that we were on the right track. We had a great formula. We were getting the support of Turner Broadcasting. We're getting interest from sponsors. We're getting interest from the international marketplace. All of those things that were so difficult for WCW to even think about. Nobody could even think about or have a realistic conversation that wouldn't have people pissing their pants and doubled up in laughter, you know, if they were trying to talk about, you know, beating WWF in the in the international marketplace or, you know, outselling arenas or, you know, doing bigger buy rates or whatever. Nobody could have that conversation three, two, three years prior to this point. So now that we were actually achieving things that nobody else really believed could ever be achieved. There was a level of confidence, not arrogance. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the general office in the, in the office that, you know, all of a sudden people were believing in themselves and a rating like, you know, us getting a 3.1 and them getting a 1.5. All that did was make us more confident that we were on the right track.
0: So let's talk about the actual show. We're finally here. Sarcade is sold out. It's sold out weeks ahead of time. There's 9,030 fans in the building. 8,327 of them paid a gate of 113 grand. Merchandise is going to top $60,000. About 58% of that is all NWO stuff. Hypothetically, what do you think? the nwo represented merchandise wise to wcw because prior to the nwo merge it was sort of anemic by comparison was it not it was it wasn't anemic it was almost non-existent i mean it it al-
1: it was so bad that it almost made no sense to bring in any staff or or uh, hardware log tables and you know displays and that type of thing it was so bad that it almost didn't make any sense to even try to sell it that's how bad it was. When, when, when I've said in the past, you know, when we talk about the business aspects of WCW, especially early on, when we've talked about why, you know, WCW didn't offer a revenue share like the WWE did so that talent didn't have a big guarantee, they had guaranteed contracts. Well, one of the reasons for that is we didn't have any revenue to share with them. You couldn't offer, you know, Hulk Hogan, you know, $20 a week plus 50% of merchandise or you couldn't offer, you know, a Roddy Piper, you know, $20 a week plus 25% of merchandise because we didn't have any merchandise revenue to share. The guys were smart enough to figure that out. Now, all of a sudden, because of the NWO merchandise and that kind of it, – it, the NWO merch and the NWO angle is what catapulted WCW into not only the merchandise category in terms of live events, like we're talking about here, where you're selling your t-shirts and whatever other tchotchkes we had at the time, but from a licensing point of view for gaming and in other types of licensed products, you know, die cast cars. And yeah, you know, I mean, you know, Cologne clone you know, a restaurant in Vegas, all of that stuff came about as a result of the success of the NWO. So, you know, to kind of put it in perspective. And again, you go back to the WWE network, look at Starcade 96. So many of the shirts in that audience, you know, facing the hard camera, all NWO shirts. We didn't plant them. People all bought that stuff. They're still buying it today for crying out loud. It's amazing.
0: The uh, dark match is a Mexican mini match. We didn't really match. see much of that in WCW. Did We're, Van We're, Hammer
1: book that <clears throat> Mexican mini match?
0: No, but that's probably why he was complaining. You know, he's not going to be on the show, but Masquerita Sagrada is.
1: <laughs> and Masquerita Sagrada could probably play the guitar. Um, yeah, we didn't see much of it.
0: but I, th- I think he played the ukulele. <laughs> it was a guitar to him. Yeah. So well, why didn't we see more Mexican minis? Every now and again, you would see him over in the WWF, but for whatever reason, uh, you didn't decide to embrace that. Did you think it was silly? I just, I,
1: I, I never liked it. <clears throat> Even as a fan, long before getting into the business, it was like the one, you know, Vern used to have, you know, he used to have smaller, <laughs> small people come in. And I just, I don't know. It just made me uneasy. Even as a fan, I never liked it. And as a producer, I really didn't like it. And then, you know, I sometimes, you know, I would, I would allow things on the show that I didn't necessarily like or didn't really fit my taste because, again, you know, I was smart enough or aware enough, I guess, to know that just because I like something doesn't mean everybody else did. and Just because I dislike something didn't mean everybody else did. So every once in a while, we try something like that. But for the most part, I really – it made me very, very, very uncomfortable to the point of almost embarrassed
0: Well, something everybody enjoyed and no one was embarrassed by is your opening match on the show, Ultimo dragon and Dean Malenko, man, this was tremendous as a kid, this really, really caught my attention. Four and a half stars is what it would get in the observer. And they have uh, plenty of time to tell a hell of a story here. 18 minutes and 30 seconds. Ultimo dragon wins the cruiserweight title here and unifies it with the other eight titles in the J crown. And of course the plan is for dragon to then go have a match with Jushin thunder Liger on January 4th at the Tokyo dome, uh, which is a big deal for new Japan, even now, January 4th in the Tokyo dome, it's going to be a super show and that was happening all the way back in 1996 as well. The Moon moonsault as a kid, man really caught my attention. What'd you think of this match? You saw it today for the first time in over 20 years. I
1: just can't say enough good things about it. And, you know, I see Asahi a couple times a year. Asahi and Sonny Ono are still very close friends. Asahi's very active in Japan as well. I'm not sure if he's still working in Mexico or not. That match, here's my first reaction this morning when I watched that. I'm a huge Dean Malenko fan. And, And when I say that and I put him over... People kind of look at me, and it's not like they think I'm crazy for saying it, but it's like they don't quite get it. And I looked at Dean this morning. when, Just when he's making his way to the entrance, before he even steps into the ring, he made me believe. I forgot that I'm watching a a, a scripted sports entertainment product. Even this morning, he's so... He was so believable and intense. And if there's ever anybody that personifies the, the, the phrase less is more, it's Dean Malenko. Dean Malenko was more believable walking out to the ring than most talent is in a 20-minute match. He just, I, I love watching Dean wrestle. And I think he's one of the most underrated performers in the last 20 years. You know Eddie Guerrero deservedly gets so much attention. Obviously Chris Benoit, despite you know that disaster and and, and horrible situation with, with Chris, but Rey Mysterio deservedly so. But I think, in my opinion, in his own way, Dean Malenko should be right up there with him because he was believable. He was he was such a non-gimmick that it became his gimmick. And I, I, I think the world of him and obviously, you know, Altimo, you know, incredible talent suit. One of the nicest guys. I don't know if you met him. I don't know if he was there at Russell when he, when you were hanging out with Sonny and whatever little freak I used to know in Chapel Hill, but super, super nice guy and amazingly talented.
0: I love the match. If you haven't already go back and watch it, it's, um, it's worth seeing. I don't know another way to say it. I guess I should mention, too, the history of this J Crown. Uh, the, the tournament to crown the first champions was held over four nights from like August 2nd to the 5th in 96. And I believe it was Jushin Liger's idea. Great Sasuke won the first tournament and defeated the Ultimo Dragon in the finals. Ultimo Dragon would beat him for it in October of 96 in Osaka. And as we said, dragon's going to go on to lose the, the J crown a few days after starcade to Jushin Liger on January 4th in the Tokyo dome. How how cool was it to feature the J crown here at starcade? It's a pretty cool deal for international wrestling, right?
1: It was a great deal. And it really established, you know, the relationship between myself and new Japan pro wrestling was at its peak. You know, we've never really talked about that in, in detail, but I think it's important here. Because if you look at the first, what is it, three matches uh, on this show, um, it's, you know, Japanese-based. And when I, first, when I first made an overture to New Japan, and I, and I did so through Brad Riggins. And, and honestly, and Brad doesn't get enough credit in that process. People, number one, they don't really know who he is. But because Brad and I had known each other since high school, we're both from Minnesota – you know, we both started with Vern Gagne. We're very, we both like to hunt, you know, we, we, we're very similar in many respects. Uh, and Brad was extremely close with Masa Saido. and Masa's job in new Japan pro wrestling at that time was to bring over the, uh, they call him Gaijin, but uh, you know, the uh, American wrestlers, anybody from outside of Japan was considered Gaijin. But, um, Masa and Brad became very good friends as a result of Masa's time in the AWA. Um, and Brad was really able to overcome a lot of issues because pre- previous to me taking over WCW, you know, Bill Watts had, uh, you know, and I don't know what the details were, so I don't want to cast any aspersions about things I don't know anything about, but <clears throat> what I was led to believe by New Japan and even people within WCW that the business relationship between WCW and new Japan had soured horribly as a result of certain things that bill Watts did or didn't do according to the deal that they had. So there was a ton of heat between new Japan and WCW when I took over and they didn't know me. I mean, Masa did knew of me, I guess, but the rest of the new Japan office, I'm talking about Antonio Inoki, um, there was a, the guy who was really kind of the, the head of business, if you will. Anoki was obviously the face of the company and 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 kind of charted the course for New Japan in many respects. But a gentleman by the name of uh, Mr. Baisho um, was really the – he was the business guy. And you couldn't do business with New Japan unless you could do business with Mr. Baisho. And my first meeting – you know, when I first went over to, to New Japan to try to establish a working relationship was not only trying to establish a working relationship that worked for both companies, but overcoming all of the previous nonsense that took place before I came in. And the Japanese just the, culturally, number one, I was a young kid. You know, the Japanese traditionally, whether it's a wrestling business or any other rest, or any other business, you know, seniority is a very important thing. You know, the, you don't find them very, you know, up-and-coming young upstarts in the corporate world in Japan. Those up-and-coming young upstarts are generally, you know, running for dinner and, and doing menial tasks, working for the big boss for decades and decades and decades as they're being groomed into management. It's a di- whole different culture than in the United States. So here I come, this young, uh, extremely young for by Japanese standards, a uh, guy who, who is running a wrestling company that nobody's ever heard of before. <laughs> so I had my work cut out for me and cut to now. And we're talking about 1994, I think is when, when that first started that relationship first started evolving cut to 1996. I'd already been to North Korea uh, with Antonio Noki and new Japan bro wrestling. I brought Muhammad Ali over, um, to, to help facilitate uh, what what Antonio Noki wanted to try to achieve with the North Korean government uh, in his own political career. Um, had a very good working relationship, so much so that you're talking about the, the January 4th event, 97, at the Tokyo Dome. New Japan flew me and my wife and kids over to Tokyo to watch this event that took place right after Starcade. And interestingly enough, and this is just a personal story, um, Muhammad Ali was there they brought Muhammad in as well and I didn't know that uh, up until this point whenever they wanted to bring Muhammad Ali over they would you know ask me to facilitate it but by this time they had enough of their own relationship that they, they did it directly so it was a surprise to me that Muhammad was actually there and I you know we were back in a green room and uh, Muhammad was with uh, his photographer a guy by the name of Howard Bingham Howard Bingham had been with Muhammad for decades and was also with us in North Korea. So I, obviously I, you know, I saw Howard and you know, we said hello and, and I went over and I, I talked to Muhammad and said hello to him and he pulled me over to – there was a couch in a corner away from everybody and he pulled me over and, and he, we, we sat down and he, he had to whisper, right? I mean, Muhammad couldn't really – raise his voice much above a whisper, but if he whispered, he could articulate pretty well. And he leaned over to me in my ear. He said, Eric, did you, did you watch the Olympics opening ceremony? And this, that, that took place by the way, a few months before this in August of 96. And I said, well, of course, Muhammad, I watched it You know, everybody watched it. And he said, did, did you see me light the torch? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I did. It was unbelievable. And then it was like, I got to be careful. I, I don't know what, when we do these shows, I get weepy sometimes. And I don't know why that is. I'm not generally a sensitive person. But he he, he leaned in and even more quietly said, do you think I embarrass myself? And then he held his hand up. And, you know, his hand shook continually. And it just floored me you know I I started to cry in front of Muhammad Ali you know I wanted to cry like a baby but my my eyes welled up I said Muhammad are you kidding me it was one, it's it was the most amazing moment of the olympics that, that in my opinion and I was so shocked that he was worried that he embarrassed himself and I just you know I I, uh, I was overwhelmed number one that he felt that way and number two that he would ask me my opinion and You know, we, we talked about it and, you know, gave him a hug and, 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 and then we, you know, we moved on from there. And then about 20 minutes later, I looked over and Garrett, who I think, this was 96. So Garrett would have been 12 years old at the point. So I look over and here's Muhammad Ali, you know, doing magic tricks with my son, Garrett, you know, pulling coins out of his ears, (laughs) stuff that Muhammad liked to do to entertain himself and other people. And then I saw him lean over and give my son a big hug. And I saw him whisper something in my son's ear. And Garrett blushed. He got this really sh- sheepish grin on his face and he blushed. And I could tell he was embarrassed. And later on he came up to me and I said, Garrett, what, what did Muhammad say to you? And he goes, he asked me if I had any girlfriends. I said, well, what's there to be embarrassed about? He said, he said, I should have two or three. I said, oh, okay. Well, that's good advice. Stick with that. But it was just, it was just so um, surreal to be at the Tokyo Dome, probably 75 or 80,000 people there in the building legit at this big show, the pomp, the circumstance. Here I am hanging out with Muhammad Ali, like we've known each other for years and three, three short years ago, they wouldn't have given me a ticket to get into the show. Right. So it was just, it was a fascinating transition for me when I, especially now, when I look back at it
0: and the new Japan talent is going to continue on this card next up, we've got Medusa in a losing effort to Akira Hokuto, And this is the final match of a title tournament to crown the first ever WCW women's champion. They get about seven minutes and six seconds. They got a star and a quarter. Uh, Medusa has been in the company for about a year. She showed up on nitro in December of 95 through the belt in the trash can. And a year later is when you guys actually crown a women's champion. And interestingly enough, Medusa never held the women's championship belt. what do you think of this match?
1: Uh, for what it was in the era that it was at the time. Uh, I, I thought it was, and by the way, it's a Kira Hokuto, not Hokuto for the record. And I don't mean to be a dick because sometimes I know I can be. But it's Akira Hokuto. And Medusa, I thought the match was okay. You know, at at this time, I think these two women were probably some of the best actual wrestling, you know, women wrestlers. They weren't eye candy. They weren't, you know, giving birth to babies or, you know, walking around their hands and knees in lingerie, barking like a dog with a choke collar. Um, They were actually in there wrestling you know look at medusa's german suplexes and you know her back bridges and hokuto's you know offense it was a pretty physical match um i think by today's standards it would hold up uh even today so i you know for what it was i thought it was pretty good you know one of the things i like and you know, we didn't talk about this in the first match um you know we had dusty Rhodes was doing color commentary along with bobby heenan so it was a three-man booth with tony Schiavone. but they brought in mike Tenay. There's another guy that I don't think gets enough um, um, respect for for some of his announcing, but, and I think if you go back, now people often complain about three-man announced teams, how awkward and you know cumbersome they can be. Here we had a four-man team, so you essentially had three color commentators and a play-by-play guy, and Tony Schiavone. But if you go back and listen to this on the WWE Network, listen to how seamlessly they fit together, and more importantly, how much credibility and believability Mike today brought to this match. I I really encourage people to go back and look at it, because to me, it's kind of textbook. Again, for my taste, my sensibilities, what I like to watch and listen to, it made it so believable. And the announcing really framed that ultimate, Dra- ultimate dragon match and Dean Malenko matches such a, a, a great way. And then we did it again here with Lee Marshall. Now Lee, you know Mike Tanay, he was like, you know, that's where we started calling him the professor because he was just like a walking talk. He was just like an encyclopedia of knowledge when it came to lucha. When it came to New Japan, there was nobody in our company, nobody that had the depth of knowledge of of Mike Taney, and when when used properly, as that color commentator, an analyst really, who just has his stats down, that lent such a tremendous amount of believability to the product overall. And to that match in particular. And Lee Marshall, you know, same thing here. Lee wasn't like the walking, talking textbook that Mike Tanay was. But Lee had a great voice and brought a great energy to it. Been around wrestling for a long time. So he had a good historical perspective on things. Um, But I really liked the way we used... You know, brought in today, brought in Lee Marshall to make these matches feel even more special in a very subtle way. But it was something that we did for these two matches that we didn't normally do. And I think it added to the overall enjoyment of it.
0: No, I agree. I I thought Lee Marshall was great. Uh, (laughs) I miss Lee. Next up, we got a, a Roddy Piper interview that Meltzer would say to say this interview made no sense would be giving it more praise than it deserves. Piper once again proved that he was the greatest interview charisma in the history of the business for his ability to simply say a bunch of things that make no sense. Most of which have nothing to do with the storyline issue. And because of his delivery, people still think it was a great interview. What'd you think of this, uh, sort of off the rails Piper promo here?
1: Not to gang up on Dave, but this is again, where philosophically, you know, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's never produced a show. Now, as a fan he may not dig it or maybe he really does and he's trying to, to have a perspective as a producer and and maybe suggesting that every promo that anybody ever does should you know have a certain formula a certain criteria or check certain boxes and that's fine if that's his opinion for a guy that's never produced anything in his life he's still welcome to that opinion I take a different approach to that when I watched this interview this morning, I was laughing my ass off. And it made me miss Roddy so much because he he was so entertaining. It didn't fucking matter if he was selling the match or not. That's what Gene Okerlin was doing. Gene is there to sell the match. Gene is there to tell us who the match is with and when it's going to happen. Gene was there to kind of set the stakes and frame the contest, right? Roddy was a character. And Roddy did, I think, a phenomenal job of creating. Look, what is a promo supposed to do? And I may start doing this, by the way, over at patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks, is do little kind of clinics on on how to do a promo f- for people that are really trying to learn. You know, when you're doing a promo like Roddy did here that we're talking about, what are you really trying to achieve? At the end of the day, what is Dave Meltzer, you know, or anybody else that has a problem with – with Roddy, not, you know, talking about the match or, or relating to the story that the we've already built the story. Fuck. We're on pay-per-view. Everybody knows the story. What's the story? Hogan, Piper. Hogan's never beat Piper. That's the fucking story. There's nothing else to talk about, Dave. It's real simple. We'd framed it. You heard it at the very head of the show. Starrcade. Everybody's talking about it's Hogan. It's Piper. The one man Hogan's never been able to beat. There is no more story. Now, what there is a need for is anticipation. Yes, we know Hogan's never beat Piper. Okay, that's cool. You got my attention. I'm looking forward to that. What Roddy did was come out and just blow his character up. So much in such a great way that now I'm really looking because he was nuts. That was Roddy's character. That was his gimmick. He was half fucking crazy, and people wanted to see that lunatic get in the ring and what would happen. So I, I I disagree with Dave's perception or perspective on this. As wow, he didn't say a damn thing. Didn't didn't achieve anything. You know, all he is is a gimmick. It's essentially what he's saying. But goddamn, could anybody do it better? I mean, he was a huge star as a result of that. And more importantly, in this particular segment, it didn't need a story to be told. We didn't need to hear Roddy Piper tell us one more time that Hulk Hogan's never beat him. We already knew the story, but he got his character over in such a great way. And watching this interview not only made me miss Roddy as a person because I just dug the hell out of him as a human being and and I miss running into him when I'm in L.A., because we'd, we'd bounce into each other almost, not every time I was in L.A., but you know every third time I was in L.A., I'd find myself sitting in a bar somewhere having a beer with Roddy. And I miss that. But what I really miss is his approach to, to a character. There's nobody in the business today that can get his character or her character over as much in a nonsensical interview than Roddy Piper. There's nobody that can get their, their character over today in a sensible, sensible interview as much as Roddy Piper could. So there you go. That's, that's how I feel about that.
0: The excellent wrestling on this show continues. Next up, we've got Jushin Liger pinning Rey Mysterio, and they get a lot of time, 14 minutes and 16 seconds. It's the first ever meeting between two of the top high flyers of all time. And, uh, it's pretty interesting to see the size difference because Liger's not a big guy. But he's much bigger than Mysterio here. Uh, it's a hell of a match. Three and three quarter stars. Uh, this is one of my favorite, more underrated matches in the history of Starcade that I don't feel like enough people are talking about. But it is interesting to note the results so far in this show as well. Ultimo Dragon wins the opening match over WCW wrestler Akira. Beats a WCW wrestler Medusa and in, in the second match, and now Jushin Liger beats a WCW wrestler in match number three. So it's not technically new Japan versus WCW, but if it were, it feels a lot like a sweep here so far, three, and zero. what'd you think of the Jushin Liger Ray Mysterio meeting
1: again? I mean, this was Ray Mysterio in my opinion, at his peak, maybe not at his peak, but he was certainly, um, arcing to that point. She he, he was so much fun to watch. And again, this was so much of what we saw out of Ray at this point was like, oh, my God, we've never seen that before. You know, not on a national stage. Obviously, Ray Mysterio was successful in Mexico. He, he worked in, in ECW. We all know that. But, but the majority of the world um, wasn't as familiar with Ray. Certainly none of us were. And to see some of the things that they did in this match, even again, watching it after all the Ray Mysterio action that I've seen over the years, even now watching back, you know, some of it, I'm looking at Ray. This is before he got bigger, you know, Ray put on some weight. I think wanting to be seen as a, you know, a different kind of a wrestler than just a, a, a cruiser weight, if you will. Um, and this is before he put on any size and he was just so fluid, so fast, So crisp, um, it, again, I just can't say enough good things about it. It's it's amazing. It really is.
0: It's also amazing that, um, we have three matches like this in a row, start a, an American pay-per-view in 1996. I don't think you get enough credit for that, but next up we've got two American wrestlers, Jeff Jarrett pins, Chris Benoit. They get plenty of time, 13 minutes and 48 seconds. Meltzer would say Benoit was up to his usual standards and Jarrett hung with him. Uh interesting to see almost as much fan support, maybe even more so for Benoit, when this is sort of Jarrett's hometown and home state. But this is the beginning of Chris Benoit starting to become the featured player we're gonna know him to be. They get three and a half stars, and obviously uh the the storyline here is all around the horseman. Jarrett's only been with the company a very short period of time and flair has sort of anointed him an honorary horseman. Uh, what'd you think of this Jeff Jarrett horseman? Is he, isn't he uh, storyline? And what'd you think of the match here with Chris Benoit?
1: You know, I like the storyline and particularly the way it played out at the end. Um, it, it all made sense to me. And again, having not seen this and, you know, watching it in the beginning, I'm going, wow, this is kind of disconnected here from a story point of view, but it all came together at the end and, and I, I enjoyed it. Um, I have to say, you know, we're both friends with Jeff. Jeff, Jeff's a cool dude and I'm really proud of him for the things that he's achieved in the last 12 or or 18 months of his life, probably more than anything. Certainly more than the fucking gimmick he wore to the ring here. That is the worst gimmick I've ever seen in, in in the years I've been in the business. And I've seen some stupid shit. This is right up there with Glacier obnoxious. Um, Glacier had his own, you know, out of place (laughs) kind of, um world championship if you will but go back and look at starkey 96 at the wwe network and ask yourself who in the fuck told jeff Jarrett that this was a good look for him
0: uh since we're talking about dressing i feel like i should mention here that Meltzer says that woman and deborah really don't like each other in real life and at this time won't even dress on the same dressing room is that true
1: yeah i remember that it's just <sighs> Caddy bullshit but yeah it was true
0: so after the match steve and deborah come out and say that jarrett was a horseman or at least was horseman material but they're running down benoit and woman which i don't know kind of interesting let's talk about the next match though because this is one that not a lot of people even remember happened It's scott hall and kevin nash retaining the tag titles beating ming and the barbarian in 11 minutes and 52 seconds nick patrick is the referee here and he's going to make very slow approaches to count whenever Ming and Barbarian have Scott Hall in a pinning position. So you start to see the seeds of the evil referee here. Uh, Hall eventually makes the hot tag and after a little brawling Barbarian misses a high kick to Nash. Nash jackknifes him and there's the pin. It's just sort of there. It's 11 minutes and 52 seconds. It does feel like maybe uh misusing Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, two of your bigger stars doesn't feel like they have a really hot issue with these guys or that they can even have the kind of match they would want to. In hindsight, do you wish you would have booked these guys a little differently on the biggest show of the year? See, I didn't
1: get that impression watching it. I was, <clears throat> and maybe because I'm looking at it from a different perspective than, than you are or, or fans would be. But when I watched the match this morning, I was kind of impressed with it. Um, I thought Ming and Barbarian looked better in this match than probably anything I had seen them in, you know, in a long, long time. Uh, The only downside is, you know, you got Jimmy Hart coming out there in his, you know, goofy fucking Jimmy Hart jacket, which kind of took the – because it's comedy. It's nothing against Jimmy. But, again, it's bad casting, you know, bad planning on my part, not Jimmy's, not anybody else's. But when you see, you know, these two – Believable, serious threatening you know guys who could potentially you know take the legs out from underneath scott and kevin at this point from a storyline point of view and then you've got a guy that looks like he jumped out of a rodeo clown car you know leading him to the ring with a bullhorn it kind of just i think if they would have come out alone in in a more serious way um the match they had you know I I believed during the course of that match that these two guys could have beaten Scott and Kevin. And isn't that what it should be? I mean, I'm, I'm asking that question. If sure. you're making a match, you want to put Scott and Kevin in there with two guys that you believe could possibly beat him, or you just want to put them in there with two guys where they can have a great match, you know, or their style of match. I, for one, preferred what we saw. I think it could have been better, like I said, if if, if Ming and Barb would have kind of come out alone without, you know, Jimmy – But I thought the match for what I thought Scott Hall sold. Of course, not that you have a ton of options with Bang and Barb. You know, you're going to cooperate. But, you know, they had a great match. Um, It was believable. Scott Hall sold his ass off. Kevin played his role really well. So I don't know. I think for what it was and what it needed to be at that point in time, I thought it was a great match.
0: I'm not shitting on it. I'm just saying from a star power standpoint. I wonder if maybe it would have made more sense to switch out the hog wild show or perhaps the, uh, Halloween havoc show where you had Hall and Nash teaming up to take on the Harlem heat or the Steiner brothers, and maybe have that match here just to make this show bigger in the end. Listen, it was a great pay-per-view. We're splitting hairs. Let's talk about the next match. Eddie Guerrero uh, is pinning diamond Dallas page here to win the vacant United States title. In 15 minutes and 20 seconds and for whatever reason the crowd was dead for most of the match but it was a good match they get three stars there is going to be the dreaded referee bump where hall nash and six are going to hit the ring and give uh page the old razor's edge which at this point is called the outsider's edge um the, the i guess i should also mention the title is vacant here because flair has torn his rotator cuff had to have surgery so he has to forfeit the belt he actually beat Conan for that United States championship at bash of the beach, 96, and then defended it successfully against Eddie Guerrero, at hog wild. But when it comes out that hey, he's going to be out of here after fall brawl, um, this is what they have to do. They do a tournament where they had everybody in it, you know, Benoit Regal, Lex Luger, Arn Anderson, Jeff Jarrett, Conan, but we're down to the finals here. And this is a pretty big deal for diamond Dallas page. You might even say that 96 is sort of his breakout year. And, we know a month from now he's going to deliver a diamond cutter to Scott Hall in a dome show, and he's off to the races. And 97 becomes the year where he's a real star. What'd you think of this match, Eddie Guerrero, DDP?
1: I enjoyed it. I don't think it was an example of some of Eddie's best work <clears throat> in terms of what Eddie w- was capable of doing. But, you know, he was working with a relatively green Diamond Dallas Page, a guy who was a lot longer and lankier, you know, than Eddie was. So it was, I mean, physically, um, probably. I'm, I'm guessing it was a little more awkward for Eddie, given Diamond's lack of experience and versatility, and just you know the size difference, the physical difference between the two. Um, to me, and again, I was, you know, I'm looking at it from my point of view, which is a little different. Um, I thought. It was really evident that Paige was really going to make a lot of progress following this match. To me, he was still awkward, wasn't 100% sure of himself. It was good. I mean, he made amazing progress given all of the circumstances, including his late start in the ring. But it was awkward. It was choppy to me. It wasn't fluid. Um, his Paige's selling was still a little forced and unnatural. So I wasn't buying, you know, when he was selling for Eddie, I wasn't really buying it the way I normally would like to buy into someone's, you know, job of selling. Um, I like the finish 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 was good. I thought the match went just a little longer than it probably should have, uh, given the lack of crowd reaction to it. But for the most part, I, I was pretty pleased with it. And I, and I think you're right, Conrad, you know, if you go back to the what you know the beginning of the show, we do a little clip backstage of DDP sitting with the guys from you know WCW dot com or whatever we called it, and Page was still you know there he was still the loud, obnoxious you know New Jersey cigar smoking you know gimmick walking, talking you know kaleidoscope of gimmicks this is the point where we started really making that change with page and 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 losing a lot of those gimmicks including the cigars and i think you know your your point is right on 97 is going to be his year following this match
0: and this is the first time we see eddie guerrero win gold in wcw of course he's going to go on to have a hell of a career and eventually become the world champion for the wwe but this is his first title here for WCW with a major American promotion, of course, besides ECW if you count that one. Uh, let's talk about the next match. Lex Luger and the Giant go 13 minutes and 23 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say match itself wasn't much, although it was something to see Giants set up for a missed drop kick. Uh, the finish was really put together and couldn't have worked better in someone's dreams. That's directly from the observer. He really liked it. It gets two stars. Uh, of course, Lex Luger gets the win and what's interesting, uh, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by talking about these shows with you because what stands out to me as a wrestling fan and what stands out to you as someone who helped put this together and was there are two totally different things. And before we started recording today, this is the match you put over the most. It, you
1: know, and what I said to you, you know, before we started recording and, and I mean it, I'm going to reach out to Lex today, give him a call. I haven't talked to him in a while and just. Put him over for what a phenomenal job he did in this match, and I encourage you know Lex Luger has a, you know he's he's got a history. You know people think about Lex Luger and the Lex Express, and even some of his early stuff in WCW, where you know no one really considered Lex to be a great worker. You know, in a great look, he was an amazing body, but you know when you, when you ask anybody, even hardcore fans of WCW, to name the top ten workers um wrestlers in terms of ring action you know in WCW Lex probably will not be on that list but if you go back and watch this match i think <clears throat> if it wasn't i'm not going to say it's the most important match of lex's career i'm sure it's not I'm sure there were far more important matches especially beginning early on in the beginning but i think in terms of its quality Lex's storytelling ability, his selling, his offense, um, the psychology that we saw, you know, within the body of this match, the emotion. And this is, you know, this is where, you know, you and I or you and Dave or you and, you know, any fan will probably start to separate in in terms of our ideology when it comes to this stuff is – I want to be really careful how I say this because I know people are going to hear it and they're going to interpret it how they want. I'm less concerned about perfect execution or the complexity of of, of a move or the you know, the dynamics, how it looks visually. I'm less concerned with that than I am with the reaction from the crowd because they're not always the same thing. The crowd isn't always going to react in a very genuine emotional way where they're really invested in what they're seeing just because they see some kind of spectacular move that only happens in Japan or a move that they've never seen before or some death-defying move, you know, that's, you know, an oh shit moment. Those are emotions, and they're valuable ones. I'm not downplaying them. But go back and watch this match. Watch the finish of this match. Watch the 45 seconds or the minute and 30 seconds going into the finish of this match. And then look out into the crowd. That's the most important part of any show, according to Elvis Presley. And presumably, I don't know if it's true or not, but if you go back and watch this match, I think it was phenomenal. I think the Giant, by the way, I'm putting over Lex here because I don't think he gets put over often enough. But Giant did a phenomenal job here. And I just, I think it's worth going, it's worth subscribing to the WWE Network just to go back and watch this match and watch Lex Luger and the Giants in it. Because I think it's one of Lex Luger's best matches from my perspective.
0: And they tell a cool story here. Luger has the giant racked, but giant hits or Nick Patrick hits the ring and then clips Luger. Uh, it's not the best clip ever. Uh, He doesn't wind up selling it, but either way at this point we see sting in the crowd. And, uh, eventually six comes in to make the save, uh, after Nick Patrick has been thrown down and he's trying to save the win for the NWO. But when sting hits the ring, he whispers something in both Luger and giants ear and then drops his baseball bat. Luger gets to the bat first, but giant puts his foot on the bat. So Luger gives giant a low blow, then uses the bat and scores the pin. And it's a big deal here because this is the first loss for the NWO. And they begin a tease that maybe there's trouble in paradise. And it's the start of the giant's babyface turn, which happens the next night on nitro. And for months, the NWO has been recruiting guys from WCW over to the dark side, so to speak. But this is the first person to sort of jump from the nwo back to wcw it's a cool story you guys did a great job with this
1: it's it's a cool story and we actually achieved two things there um not only did we set giant up you know for a a return to the babyface side of the equation and we did it in a pretty pretty good way but the the way we used sting in this match where you, you know, you, you, what did, what did he whisper in, in this guy's ear? What did he whisper in, in that guy's ear? What, what is Sting all about? Creating that m- mystery around Sting where we just weren't sure what he was going to do or who he was going to do it to, I think was one of the, this was the beginning of, of what ended up being a pretty phenomenal program with Sting. And it, it reflects something that I figured out you know, going back to the NWO. And this was something that I tried to, I try to convey, I tried to, implement and as much of everything that we were doing as possible. But I, I realized somewhere along the line right before, maybe, maybe it was really during the NWO. I don't want to give myself too much credit. I, I probably stumbled into it is the, is the truthful way of saying it. But after the NWO, I realized that creating the question in in the case of the NWO, who's the third man was a subtle, but hugely significant difference in the way stories were being presented. Up until this point, up until the point of the NWO and who's the third man, and how much success we had building on one simple question, who's the third man? Up until that point, I had not paid attention to or 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 had ever really remembered seeing a storyline built around a question. Up until that point, it was always a storyline built on a, on a promise or a statement. Conrad, I'm going to kick your ass for the World Heavyweight title. I can't wait to get you in the ring. I'm going to kick your ass for challenging me. It was always very simple in that respect and variations of that. That's what I mean by statements versus questions. And when we built off of the success of the, the Who's the Third Man um, question and, and all the energy that that solicited, I tried to – use that device whenever we possibly could. And sting was the next manifestation of that, not knowing whose side he was on the fact that, you know, he left, you know, he went into that cro character because he felt betrayed by so many people that he thought he was close to in WCW. He was kind of the, I hate to use the phrase that's been overused a million times, but the lone wolf, if you will, you know, the guy, the guy that's not a part of anything. He's just his own thing. That mystery that we created in that storyline. And you even saw in this match by the fact that, you know, Sting was whispering in everybody's ears, you don't know what side he's on. And I just think that it, that's what, when I saw this it's probably one of the reasons I got excited overall at the match, because it, it checks so many different boxes all in, in, in the course of one match that it, I thought it was really, really good.
0: It was good. Let's get to our main event. And this is what we're here for. Hulk Hogan is, is going to defend his world title against Roddy Piper, or so we think we don't find out until the end of the night that it wasn't actually a title match, but it doesn't mean that it's still not an entertaining match. And what I found most entertaining about this is that Piper's so over and Hogan is being booed so much, but there's so many NWO shirts in the crowd. It is sort of interesting that the NWO is cool and getting lots of cheers and people are supporting it in droves and buying the shirts, but still somehow they're booing Hulk Hogan and cheering Roddy Piper. And that really speaks volumes about the talent that both of these guys possess that Hulk Hogan is with the cool brand, but he's such a heel. They hate him. And Piper is so charismatic that no matter how cool the opposition's organization is, they've got to cheer for him. I thought it was well done. And it, it is sort of a out of left field finish. This is an era where you don't see matches in with a sleeper. But Piper puts Hogan to sleep and his arm drops not once, not twice, but three times. Pretty unbelievable finish. Uh, It gets a star and a half in The Observer, but considering the story they told, I enjoyed it more than that. But I understand how you could be critical of their work. Piper certainly looks older than he was earlier this same year when he wrestled Goldust at WrestleMania. And I do think that's sort of. Lost and I don't know why nobody talks about it, but he had such a big WrestleMania moment earlier this same year with Gold Dust, and now he's on the big show Starcade. It's pretty fascinating to me. Chat me up. What'd you think of the match?
1: Again, this is where from an ideological point of view, you know, we'll we'll separate, not necessarily you and I, but you know, people like Dave and myself. Yeah, from a technical point of view, for whatever that's worth. By the way, I've seen a lot of great matches from a technical perspective that bored the fucking audience to tears. Their job, and this is what people I wish they would – it doesn't matter to me. I don't have a dog in in this hunt anymore, so it's not really personal for me anymore. But what disappoints me sometimes when I hear criticism of what's going on now, even in WWE – and people are bitching and moaning and complaining because they're so focused on what they think they understand, which they they clearly don't. Um, is did how did the crowd react? How did people at ringside react? What was the emotion? The wrestler's job isn't to impress. Conrad or Eric or Dave Meltzer or or Wade Keller or Mike Johnson or, or Dave Shear. That's not what they're out there to do. That's what the, sometimes people that write about wrestling think that sh- they should be doing. But a performer's job is to entertain the audience and to create emotion and a sense of value with the audience. Not with the fucking dirt sheet writers that like to make themselves so smart writing about it. And while Dave may have only given it a star and a half from his perspective, he's welcome to that point of view. But ask yourself, as a fan or someone who really wants to analyze the product in a somewhat intelligent way, is did they achieve their goal with the audience that paid paid money to watch it? And if they did, it was a five star match. I don't care how fucking athletic something is, or how many hurricane ratas, or how many, you know. Japanese moonsaults people do, or how, 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 often they set themselves on fire in the ring or bust their heads open. No, that shit matters if the audience doesn't really get into it and it doesn't really create an emotion other than, Holy shit, this is awesome. If that's all you get, you're coming up short. But when people are literally standing and cheering and they're genuinely emotionally invested in the outcome of something, that's a five-star match in my book. Not Dave's, maybe not yours, maybe not a lot of fans, but in my book, just look at the finish, look at the crowd reaction, and then maybe evaluate it from a different perspective.
0: It was a fun match and, uh, it is interesting because it's the first time that Hulk has put Roddy Piper over on a pay-per-view ever, even going back, you know, to the very beginning to the first WrestleMania, when you were first negotiating to bring Roddy into WCW. Was there a discussion about who would win this match at all? I know we talked about that on our Piper episode, but maybe everybody hasn't heard that. Tell me what was discussed or promised as they say to Roddy Piper when he came in here. Absolutely nothing. I mean, obviously, you know, money and and
1: details of the agreement and all that or the contract were obviously discussed. And that was really, that took place more so probably between Nick Lambros um, and Barry Bloom or whoever was representing um, Roddy. Uh, whatever attorney he was using at the time. I wasn't involved in those discussions. Um, But in terms of my meeting with Roddy, especially the initial meeting that took place at Mitch Ackerman's house, Mitch Ackerman was a, a very, he was an executive producer at uh, Disney and he was, Mitch was the guy that brought Roddy and I together. He was a mutual friend. And, you know, our first discussions were really more about the direction of WCW, you know, what, you know, the NWO idea, you know, Roddy wanted to hear my philosophy, you know, I, I guess on, you know, where I thought the business could go and where he could go in the business. But it was all kind of a macro conversation, you know, uh, 10,000 feet as opposed to, all right, now I'm going to have this match with you know, Hulk Hogan in December. You know, how long is that match going to be? Who's going to go over? How's he going to beat me? How am I going to beat him? We didn't get into that discussion at all. Roddy was more interested in the overall direction of the company and f- philosophy, I guess of where I was taking the company than he was in the outcome of any matchup.
0: The next item nitro, when the show starts, the NWO gets out of limos and they're walking into the building and giant asks Hogan, when his title shot is going to happen since he won the battle Royal at world war three, which guaranteed him a future title shot. And Hulk tells him that Giant, you dropped the ball last night for not taking Roddy out during the match. And it is sort of fun that of all the times to ask for the title match. This is the time to do it. Um, we know what's going to happen though, later in this same show, they're going to come out and try to attack Roddy Piper's bad hip. And they're even going to ask the giant to choke slam him, but he refuses and Hogan gets mad at giant slaps him. Then giant grabs Hogan around the throat and won't let him go until Hogan promises to give him the title match. And you have an idea of what's coming here. They're going to leave the giant lane, and tons of garbage is going to come into the ring. And they're sort of your payoff and transition for Starcade 96. By the way, uh, no question who won the ratings that next night. Nitro gets a 3.6, Raw gets a 1.6. Uh, overall, how do you rate Starcade 96? You watched it for the first time since it happened this week on a scale of 1 to 10. Where do you put this one?
1: I'd give it a 9. You know, I, I I really think it was probably one of the better pay-per-views overall um, in, in terms of the variety of presentation, you know, the diversity in characters, you know, with the Japanese, with the luchas that we brought in, I think the storytelling that we saw in almost all of the matches, you know, with the exception of perhaps Eddie Guerrero and Diamond Dallas Page, it wasn't really a lot of story there, but I think the, the the storytelling and the continuation of story that we saw in almost everything um, was phenomenal. You know, I thought the women's match with Medusa um, and Akira, I thought it was great. You know, again, context, you know, at that time, look at what women wrestling was in 1996 in WWF. Oh, wait, there wasn't any. Um, or if there was, it was minimal. and yeah. And it was not nearly as good as this. So I think overall, I, I, God, I'd give it a nine. I was really excited to see this this morning. Sometimes I watch this stuff back, knowing I'm going to have to spend an hour and a half or two hours with you doing this podcast. I'm just it's like, oh, motherfucker, I can't believe we're doing this. Show. Oh, oh, he's going to grill me. He's going he's to fry me for the next hour and a half. And then sometimes I watch a show like this and I go, uh-huh, bring it, big boy.
0: I'm ready. Eric, let's get to some questions we posted it on social media. Hey, what would you like to ask Eric about Starcade 96? Here we go. Are you ready? Rapid fire, Eric, let's do it. Ready. I, I don't know why this is fun, but it is. LC wants to know, who do you think had the better acting career, Hulk Hogan or Roddy Piper? I think Roddy
1: Piper. As you know, Hulk probably did more movies. Um, but in terms of, you know, they live as a cult classic to this day. And I think that for no other reason, that probably, um, is the tipping point for me.
0: Here's a fun one here. Um, Michael Berry senior wants to ask how instrumental was Piper exposing Eric in the storyline to getting Eric over as a member of the driving force behind the NWO.
1: I think it was critical. you know, it, it was so believable and so entertaining and, And just the execution, and again, Roddy, so much, I can't can't say enough good things about Roddy, I know. It's like we were talking about earlier, the promo that he did in the beginning of Starkey 96, that was all improv. And, you know, you can, if you choose to, um, you can criticize Roddy's technique for not making any sense, and it was all over the place, and blah, 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 blah. But look what it did for him in terms of building his career. It was, it was part of who Roddy was and why people paid money to go see him. Why else would one do a promo other than to get your character over and to encourage money to pay people to see you? And the thing that Roddy did and I together with Hulk and everybody else, him exposing me, that was all improv. That wasn't scripted. Roddy just knew what he had to achieve and what the goal was of that scene. And when you turn a guy like Roddy loose, who was so phenomenally gifted at, at that style of, of improv storytelling in, into an intense situation like we had when he was revealing me, I think any, to anybody else that would have done it would have fallen significantly short um, compared to what we achieved with Roddy. Roddy made that scene
0: work. I didn't make that
1: scene work. Roddy made that scene work.
0: So let's talk. Um, and this is a fun one here from bad money. Slim hypothetically speaking, what was your favorite WCW women's championship match? (sighs) Thanks. Bad money. Slim.
1: Yeah. He's just being an (laughs) asshole.
0: Ryan wants to know who did Hogan have a more on again, off again relationship with Roddy Piper or macho man.
1: Who did, I'm sorry, repeat the question, please. Who
0: did Hogan have a more on-again, off-again relationship with, Piper or Macho Man? Oh, Macho Man.
1: Roddy, Roddy and Hulk were, yeah. you know, memory is a funny thing. You know, I always <laughs> I tell people, you know, it's like pain. You know, I remember I, I shattered my right arm, you know, about 10 years ago, my upper right arm. Now, I know that it hurt. Just intellectually, I know that it hurt, but I can't remember the pain, if that makes sense. You know, if you've ever had a significant injury, you go, oh, man, it hurt like hell. But if if someone says, well, describe the pain to me, eh, it's kind of hard to do other than just not really hurt. And I think sometimes the same thing happens at least for me, you know, maybe it's because the stage of life that I'm at and I tend to look back and I choose to look back fondly or, or as positively as I can on most things that have gone. I don't focus on the negative. I try to focus on, on things that makes me feel good, not things that irritates me or makes me feel bad about myself. And I, I think when I look back at some of these relationships, it's kind of like pain. You don't remember the pain. You only remember the good stuff. At least I do. And You know, from what I remember, once Roddy came back into – once Roddy came to WCW, um, he he and Hulk got along great. I mean, they had their issues prior, no doubt. Well documented. They both talked about it. But once Roddy came in, he was a different person. Hulk was a different person. They saw opportunity in each other, and I think they had both matured to the point where they knew it was going to be give and take, and they were perfectly happy with that. And I know – I'm go, I'm going off on a tangent on this, but you brought it up, and it's Roddy, and it's Roddy. So there you go. Um, Hulk was the person that called me uh, when Roddy passed away. Lori and I were we were it was over our anniversary. We we're on a Harley driving up into Bozeman, Montana, to do some trout fishing, and we stopped at a little bar on the way home in Livingston, Montana, and Hulk called me, and he was just he, he was devastated. And I saw Hulk. I don't know a month or two later. And he has, and he does this frequently, you know, if he has a conversation with somebody or, or you know, he'll, he'll, he'll save a call or he'll, you know, if somebody leaves him a message that, you know, for whatever reason means something to him, he'll save the message. And he, he played for when I saw him in person, he says, here, here's my last, con-, you know, was, I think it was the day, night before Roddy passed away, actually. You know, Roddy had called Hulk and left him a long, long detailed message and, and Hulk played it for me. And he had probably 20 of those messages from, from Roddy. These guys were going back and forth, you know, on a regular basis, you know, Terry, Hulk was going through what he was going through at the time. You know, Roddy was going through what Roddy was going through at the time just before he passed away. And Roddy would leave him these long, really um, emotional messages. And I I guarantee you the next time you see Hulk, um, ask him if he still got those messages, and I guarantee you he's, he's saved every one of them. Um, so they got along great. You know, Randy was you know he was a more mercurial personality. Um, it was easy to inadvertently rub Randy the wrong way. It's just Randy, you know. But it, again, it was a, it was like family in a way. You know, it it's it it, it, it was love hate hate love love hate any given day take your pick um when they were really tight and when they were in love they were really in love when they weren't they really weren't um towards the end again um now i had heard about randy's accent i was actually in tampa the the morning that it happened um so i had heard about it but i you know immediately went over to terry's house and we sat and, and talked about it um Right before he passed away, you know, they they ran into each other at a doctor's office. Terry was contemplating yet another surgery, and Randy was in the same um, medical building, and they ran into each other, had a a real sit-down heart-to-heart, and kind of mended the fence, so to speak, literally, you know, I think it was probably a week or two before Randy passed away. So, you know, it, it was up and down, but I think, you know, of the two, The, it was far more up and down with Randy than it was with, with Roddy.
0: Sharon Shabazz asked a question. I think a lot of people want an answer for why a non-title main event on the biggest show of the year.
1: Didn't feel like we needed it. And clearly we didn't. I was right. Why do it if you don't have to. Right. Is a better question.
0: Why, uh, why the sleeper as a finish? How did you guys decide on that one? Well, we got that question a thousand different ways.
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't a part of that discussion, so I don't, you know, I can't honestly tell you why they chose it. You know, that wasn't, you know, me laying out a finish of a match or laying out the body of the match is something to this day I would not do. Given you know thirty years of experience under my belt, you will not ever find me given any opportunity to lay out a match. That's just not what I do. I'm not a wrestler. It's not my skill set. There are people that are far better at there were and are people far better at that particular task than me. So I never got involved in it. Um, I think it was a good decision, by the way. One, it's something you didn't see very often. Two, given the limited you know abilities, you know, what was Roddy gonna do? A, a, you know a missile drop kick off the top turnbuckle? maybe
0: here's a fun yeah. question whose idea this is from damien purvis who came up with the idea for stealing the tape now here's the idea the next day on nitro hogan's going to claim that they've stolen the tape of the main event the prior night to make sure that you know this tape never gets out it's never distributed that's a fun little thing do you remember who came up with that that little idea
1: Yeah, that happened literally the next day. Um, It was one of those things like after we saw somebody came up, hey, what if we do this? It was a collaboration. Kevin Sullivan was was definitely involved in it. I was involved in it. Um, Probably ran up by Terry and everybody else that was involved in it. Everybody got excited about it. So it was kind of a spontaneous uh, thought that everybody came up with. Again, it was a collaboration. There was no one person that said, hey, hey, everybody, sit down. Sit down. I've got an idea. Well, it feels things like things generally didn't happen that way,
0: but it probably did. When you guys decided to put hard work, Bobby Walker on the poster for this pay-per-view, can you believe you did that? No. Lex Luger has hard work, Bobby Walker in a rack, a torture rack. And that is the promotional poster for the pay-per-view, which it just tells you how, I don't know. There, the, the definitely Turner was. A, a fractured business at times and, and this is definitely one of those situations
1: well you know but but Conor, there's there's another element to this as well not not that what you're saying isn't true it was true I mean when you say it was fractured it was it was dysfunctional in in many respects even at this point um, but another challenge that we had and, and we were learning at this point to adapt to it Was that your pay-per-view companies, all the people that wanted their collateral materials, meaning their posters, their artwork, you know, whatever, whatever items you use to promote your content, um, advertising and direct TV and all the cable outlets, all those people wanted their shit like six months in advance. You know, I don't know if it was six months, may have been four months, whatever, you know, if you didn't get it to them, you know four or five, six months in advance, you wouldn't have any collateral material. And often we didn't know what the matches were going to be or, or what the theme of something might be. So they tended to get generic stuff because at least it was safe. Um, the worst thing in the world would be to have, you know, world heavyweight championship match, Hulk Hogan, you know, nature boy, Ric Flair. And then creatively, or for whatever reason, all of a sudden now you're changing the direction and all your collateral material no longer made sense. So what we started doing as a result of that was starting to do some really generic kind of stuff. And not that that's, I'm not justifying this particular poster. um, But it was oftentimes some of the stuff was somewhat generic or seemed disconnected from the actual event because of the timing of when we had to provide it versus when we knew what we were doing.
0: Well, we know what we're doing next week. We're going to be talking about Starcade 1997, the biggest show ever, and we'll be back next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.